What's up, everybody, and welcome into another podcast episode, Trial by Media, Fair or Foul, and today we're going to be talking about the victim's rights. What is the right of the victim to control their privacy and not be publicly blasted out on all news outlets if they are a victim of a crime, obviously outside of their control? And then on the flip side, what rights do victims have to participate in the media? How does it affect their First Amendment right? Can they be gagged? We will talk about all that and more in today's episode. And joining me is my dad, George Tragos, and Pete Sardis. So we have gone through so many different um, individuals and parties and what their rights are in the process. And we've focused a lot on the criminal defendant. We focused a lot on the prosecutor, the judge, the media itself. But a lot of times victims get lost in this situation. So what rights, statutes, laws, constitutional protections are there for victims that of criminal cases? Well, they, they stem from two things. One is the constitutional right to privacy that the Supreme Court has read into the Constitution. And secondly, we have a statutory protection, normally referred to as Marcy's Law, uh, that's been established in a lot of courts. And, and, and I know when you began this, you talked about the victims. Well, I think that there's been a growing uh, ups, uh, upswing in protection for victims. And so that's what we're seeing in these new laws and that's what we're seeing in these privacy laws. So victims are coming to the forefront as far as being protected in the court process or the criminal process. Pete, what can and can't they protect and keep private? Because there are certain things they can't, right? Regardless of what now, happens. And the reality is victims generally, their contact information, and for a lot of sensitive crimes, and especially when we're talking about vulnerable victims, their names are kept out of the public record. Meaning that if you go to the clerk's office and look up a case, you won't find a name or an address or a phone number, stuff like that. Um, but if a victim, though, wants to participate in the legal process, because they have every right to do that. So if they want to come to the court hearings, if they want to speak to the court, if they want to be you know, involved that kind of is where it becomes a gray area. Um, the media has the right to record whatever's happening, again, unless it's a vulnerable victim. Um, so if you decide as a victim that you want to participate, your the chances of your anonymity staying anonymous fall significantly. And Pete, what about specifically um, like sensitive victims, victims of certain crimes, minors, um, how are they protected more? Because we've seen court documents, we've seen initials when it's minors. Why is that? And what types of protections are in place for them? They consider vulnerable victims, people that have like, let's just we say, let's just call it sensitive crimes, um, crimes against persons. If you've got children involved, elderly people or developmentally disabled people, those people are normally, and depends on the jurisdiction, either protected by court rules separately or by statute separately. And what they'll do is they'll either use their initials um, for children. A lot of times they won't actually bring them into the courtroom. They'll put them in a separate room where there's a video feed where the courts can see um, those particular victims to be able to make a statement or to testify where they're not in the courtroom with everybody else, with the media, with all the spectators. So that's kind of the things that they, the courts can do based on the individual rules in a jurisdiction to reduce the effect. Because what the key is, you don't want to victimize a victim twice by being part of the process, the legal process that they're involved in by no choice of their own. 
So a lot of things can be covered by court order, right? And we're focusing on kind of rules and laws and the constitution, but a court can file or can uh, order a protective order after a motion for protective order. They can grant something that uh, you can seal documents or seal information, or they can close the courtroom. They can kick cameras out. They can do a lot of things to protect victims. Um, and they do in a lot of cases, but that even above court orders, um, we have seen testimony of witnesses where they're masked. We have seen testimony of witnesses where there's a shield or a screen around them. Why is that something that's not really available for victims when they testify at trial against a criminal defendant? Why are there certain things that you cannot protect the identity or the privacy of a victim witness um, in a criminal trial? Well, let's start with basically um, the presumption is the First Amendment applies in a criminal trial, that this is an open courtroom that the public has a right to know that it's an open trial. So you start with that presumption. When you close it or when you start limiting it, then you have to have a specific government interest. You have to have a reason to do that. Um, for instance, we're talking about juveniles. Courts have uh, stated that there is a governmental interest, a public interest in keeping the names of juveniles uh, secret or having juveniles testify, like you said, in a, in a separate room to protect them from the open courtroom. And we've seen that real quick. We've seen that in the Ronnie O'Neill case where his son testified by video in a different room and it was not streamed. Um, I think you could hear his voice, but his picture was not screen streamed um, at all. So there, there had, we have seen cases like that on YouTube and had cases ourselves where those things have come into play. Right. Or a victim is in the witness, witness protection program, mm -hmm. uh, for instance. So that there's been a specific threat against that witness. However, that is not the general rule. The general rule is that when a victim testifies, that that becomes public domain at that point. So again, I think that victims uh, have to be very sensitive to the fact is there's a very good chance that when they testify, that what they say, their image, all of that could go across um across the media, across the video, and they have to be sensitive to that. Um, so, you know, there's a balance between the First Amendment, the freedom of the press and public access, and the right of privacy, uh, which stems from other amendments that the Supreme Court's established. Uh, even when you have a state statute, the state statute still cannot violate the First Amendment. And so uh, the, the courts have to find some specific governmental interest to stop that from becoming a public uh, public domain when they testify in court. Can I, I add, say something, Pete? Because I there was I, something I was, was hoping to get out of that answer. But what ahead. I was going to say, you've got to understand that the system is designed to provide the defendant every right. So when you're talking about screening off or masking off witnesses that are testifying, you're potentially violating the rights of the defendant to be able to confront that witness. Right. That's where I was expecting to us to do this. Confrontation clause has something to do right. with this as well. And victims can't just not testify or can't just put a mask on or can't just not show up to court because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is very, it is part of re-victimization basically to have to come and tell this story again. But we do that because of the confrontation clause. So go ahead right. and continue explaining that. Yeah. So what you have is as it, as a criminal defendant, once the criminal process starts, the most important person's rights is the defendant. And I know that pisses off a lot of people, especially victims that are in the court process. But that uh, defendant has the right to confront witnesses against them, to cross-examine them, to see them, to you know compel them to come testify or to observe their testimony. 
Uh, so unfortunately for a victim, you are technically a witness in a criminal case, which means that that defendant has the right to see you, to ask you questions, to to observe you, to you know, to compel you to show up to court. And you can't just decide you don't want to be part of that unless you don't want to prosecute. And that's right. kind of why it's difficult sometimes for prosecutors. And that and that's the point is not all victims have to cooperate. And a lot of times the criminal case will go away. So it's a very difficult process because they have to be involved. They have to testify basically in order to get justice on their own behalf. And part of that does open you up to the media, the public record, and your information getting out there for people to know. In civil cases, same thing. You're usually going to testify. If you don't want to, the defense can call you to testify if you choose to bring that case, but it is your choice. And you do have a choice in a criminal case as well. But it's like, it feels like you don't have a choice because you want justice to prevail, yeah. obviously, at the end of the day. Well, the, the but the, the point is that victims are not, in generally victims, I think, don't mind facing their accuser. And, and having that, I, I, that's not what the I think they probably mind it would be my guess. They probably don't like doing it. Right. But they'll do it. But the, the studies show that nine out of 10 victims, their biggest fear is the, is the media is their name going out to the public. And, and that's what they're really scared of. And, and that's what they say. If you do the study, that's what they say. If I'm going to hesitate reporting a crime, it's I'm going to hesitate because I don't want my name out there in the newspaper or out there on television. So that leads to the next question then. Um, gag orders, okay? How much input do victims have? How much input should victims have in courts rendering some kind of non-dissemination or gag order in cases because we've seen state attorney's offices or the government and we've seen defense lawyers file those types of motions to get gag orders, to not let anything leak out um, for the court to reprimand or even sanction people where that does happen. What input do you think victims do or should have in that process? Well, if you're talking about, let's talk about Marcy's law. Uh, Marcy's law established, they really, they really do have a right now to come into court. They have a right to have their lawyer there in court. They will. They have a right now to actually file a motion to keep their name or to, or to somehow uh, make them anonymous. I don't think they're going to be successful in most cases because in most cases, they're not going to be able to show an overriding interest in just their keeping their name out of the press, but they have a right to try. Um, but I, I really think that the balance between the first amendment and those, the other amendments that we're talking about, the right of privacy, I think in those cases, it's going to be very tough for a victim to establish that they have a particular unique right to keep their name out of the press. But we've seen in gag orders, the, the motions and the arguments made by the government and defense has been, you're not going to be able to have a fair and unbiased jury, uh, safety issues for the victim or the witnesses, um, investigative techniques by law enforcement, things like that. Uh, when you come up with those as the main reasons, if a victim comes into play and they say there's safety issues or privacy issues, and maybe even a fair and impartial juror would be more difficult for them to find one, do you think that those are legitimate arguments they can try to make to get the ball rolling in a gag order? Or do you think their preference will never be held as high as the two parties in the case, which people sometimes don't understand this victim is not a party to a criminal case. It is the state or the government and the defendant. So if those two parties don't want a gag order, do you think there's ever a situation where a victim will be able to push that Pete? 
I think it would be odd, especially in a criminal case, uh, if a victim had a sensitive issue that a prosecutor would not uh, take the position of the victim and present it to the court. I, I think it would be tough to do it. Now, unless, of course, there's somebody that doesn't want to testify, because the case law is pretty clear. If there is a risk to a witness, a victim or not, uh, you know, they're obligated to deal with that issue in front of the court. And it very well may be in cases where there's, you know, gang affiliations or we're talking about mafia connections or something like that. Uh, th those people are protected because they don't want their names and their identities to be out in the public realm so that they're not uh, they're not at least targeted uh, to either affect their testimony or eliminate their testimony. Well, so when you look at the extremes, I think it's easy. It's the ones in the middle, I think, that are going to be the hardest ones to consider. Um, if I say, you know, I don't want to have my name out in the press, but I want to go out in the front steps of the, you know, of, of the courthouse and hold the sign up, clearly that's not going to work. On the other side, if I really am a terrified victim and I'm in a place where I believe my life is in danger because I'm involved in this case and the minute my name goes out there, you know, there's going to be problems. Those are easy. It's the ones in the middle that I think are very difficult. And keep in mind, gag orders cannot be limited to the press. The, the court has said that if you're going to do a gag order, you cannot just gag the press. If you're going to do a gag order, you either close the courtroom to the public or you do a gag order to people who are uh, parties in the case. But you just can't say um, newspapers and press, you can't publish the name. They said that that's an unreasonable restriction of the First Amendment. If you feel that there's a danger to a victim, then you have to close the whole courtroom or you do the mask so that the public as well as the press cannot see the face. So I mean a so, gag order on the whole case. I mean yeah. a gag order on the whole case like there is in Koberger, for example, where none of the information can be disseminated out from the courtroom, the parties, anybody with knowledge, law enforcement, the agents of each side, that type of gag order, right? Because we have seen and we'll just use Koberger because this is where a lot of this stuff is coming from where the state and the defense wanted a gag order. The victims didn't. And that could be vice versa, right? The victims could want a gag order and the state and the defense don't. And I think in most of those cases, there's not going to be a gag order because the court's going to look at the parties and the reasons for gag orders and say, well, if the parties don't think there's a reason for a gag order, we're really not going to put a gag order on the case just because the victim wants to. And I think the way I look at it, I don't think victims have a ton of rights in the criminal process. That's just, that's kind of the way I see it. Um, you may disagree, but when we talk about a victim's right in the process and Pete said, oh, I can't see why. And I agree with you. I can't see why the state would not present the wishes of the victim to the court. Well, that just happened. It's happened over and over again in the Koberger case as at least one of the victim's families have come out and said they don't want the gag order. Well, the state still wants the gag order. The judge orders the gag order. Number two, cameras in the courtroom. The state and the defense filed motions why there shouldn't be cameras in the courtroom. The media intervened and, and argued that there should be cameras in the courtroom. Well, you know, we didn't hear from the victims. What do they want? What do they think? What do they think is most important and most beneficial to a fair trial? What do they think will be the best thing for justice in their case or for make sure there's transparency so we don't have appellate issues? Well, the answer is they think cameras should be in the courtroom, but nobody mentioned that. The state certainly didn't mention that. And I find that to be weird. And I think that that's maybe not necessary. I think at the very least, the court should say, kind of like we do in PTI, right? So diversion programs in criminal cases, the court usually wants and the state usually will talk to a, a victim in that case and make sure it's okay with them if the criminal defendant goes through this process and eventually the charges get dropped at the end. 
I think at the very least, there should be something that the court says, well, how does the victim feel about this? What do the victims think about gag orders? What do the victims think about cameras in the courtroom? What do you think we, about that, Dad? In Florida, we have victim advocates. Right. I don't know if every state has that. Well, these victims Florida, have a lawyer. Have, what? These victims have a lawyer. Yes. And, and I don't, frankly, I don't know why they didn't say, I, I, I know you're saying it, but I can't understand why they didn't stand up in the back. Of, I would have. Uh, I've done that for clients. Stand up well, in the back of the court and said, judge, we want to be heard. Okay. So before we just throw out facts, like they, they have been there plenty of times. They have made arguments to the judge but the judge does not seek out what the victims want in these okay. situations. And the judge is not asking the prosecutor, how does the victim feel? That happens all the time. I've seen that happen in cases, tons of time in court for something that's way less important than this. How does the victim feel about this? Or how does the witness even feel about this? If it's something that will affect the witness. But in this case, they've got to pay a lawyer to show up and go there. And may, I mean, that also seems like well, it shouldn't be, that, that should not be part of the process where in order to have your voice heard as a victim, you have to pay a lawyer that knows what they're doing to show up and make these arguments for you. Well, you don't have, you don't have, I mean, again, again, I'm, I'm thinking ideal world here, but sure. But you know, judges, yes. And I've seen judges in courtrooms say, is there a victim present in the courtroom? Right. And uh, sir, ma'am, do you have anything you want to say? Is there anything you'd like to add to this? Uh, or I've never seen a judge shut a victim down. I've never seen a judge when a, when a victim wanted to speak. I've never seen a judge not hear the victim. Uh, so uh, again, I don't know what's what happened in that courtroom. I know, and I've repeatedly happened in my courtrooms where victims have spoken and sure, where judges I'm not saying have they never do. I'm not saying they never do. This okay. is a victim's right, not what might happen to a victim, as right. it's, it's right now. A victim does not have a right to force a gag order. A victim does not have a right to make sure there are no cameras in the courtroom. They right. do not you're, have that right. The parties, it, you are correct. The parties have the right to file those motions and make those arguments. And the court listens to that. And so I just think that when it comes to certain aspects of the case, certain aspects of the case, now victims can't make charging decisions. Victims can't make, you know, dropping decisions. If the state feels like they can't prove the case, obviously victims can't make those decisions. But when it comes to how highly publicized the case is or what type of media access, I think they should be involved in the process at the very least because they are one of the main people that this is going to affect. What do you See, think about it, Pete? But I think they are involved in the process. And my gut says in the Koberger case that the, the prosecutor did speak to the victims, but the prosecutor has to prosecute a case, right? And the defense lawyer has to defend a case. So those two lawyers have to make decisions to make sure that the criminal process is fair. So this prosecutor and that defense lawyer don't have to retry this case because of some uh, some issue that is caused by, you know, by. So uh, let me just time out, play, play devil's advocate a little bit. So yeah. you're saying you're sure the prosecutor spoke to them. Am I sure? No, but I would be shocked if a prosecutor went up and made a representation to the court without having spoken to their victims. Right. Now, he may not that. agree. He may not agree with the victim's stance. And real, let me just give you an example. Well, hold on. No, they no, no. I don't want to switch okay. examples. Pause. Go ahead. Let's Go stick ahead. right here where we are, where we know right. what's happening. Okay. What if the victims are, let's say the prosecutors find the victims annoying. Okay. Because we are not talking about what you're sure happened. We're not talking about what you think should happen. We're not talking about in our experience, what usually happens. Does a victim have a right to talk to and make their opinion known to the prosecutor before the prosecutor makes a decision on what their arguments are going to be for or against cameras or gag orders? 
No, not a right. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and that's, that's, I think, what the problem... Go ahead, Dad. Wait. wait. Uh, yeah, but under Marcy's law, what? Why, why Go ahead. Your the answer is no. They do not have an absolute right to be heard on those issues. They do not. Well, under Marcy's law... Those are trial law, strategy decisions. Well, I, I'm just saying under Marcy's law, they have a right to to uh, to ask that their identity be kept secret. That's fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm so, saying, let's say they, like in this case, they don't want a gag order. They do want cameras. They do not have an absolute right to even make that statement known to the court or the prosecutors. And I think that that's kind yeah. of a bad, I mean, we, I'll just say me, like all you guys, my dad, I know is mostly criminal offense and Pete has done kind of both over his career, now mostly representing victims. It's an impossible situation to be in, especially when there's a criminal aspect to it, especially if you don't have a lawyer. If you have a lawyer who can force their way in, then I think it makes a difference. But I do find it frustrating for victims when this entire process is going on. Oh, we care about the victims. We care about the victims. We care about the victims. But if the victim's wishes don't align with what you want to do or how you want to do it as the prosecutor or the criminal defense attorney, obviously criminal defense attorney not as in line with the victim's then it just kind of doesn't matter. And you still make the arguments you want to make. And Pete, I agree with you hundred percent. It's incredibly annoying if they have to go retry this case because of an annoying victim. But guess what? At the end of the day, it's not justice for the prosecutors. It's not justice for the defense or attorneys. It's justice for what was done to the victim. Especially when you have a case like this, where there are four, I, I get it, the community at large and the state of Idaho and all that, but there are four people's lives who were ended and whose families' lives were will never be the same. It's going to annoy and frustrate and be miserable for no one more than the victims and their families. If they have to do That's this true. all over again, oh, boo-hoo, the prosecutor gets paid to try the case again. The public defender gets paid to try the case again. But the victims and their families that are put through torture multiple times, it affects them way more than the prosecutor, the judge, or the defense. So, I right. mean, that that's where I kind of feel like the victims don't want to have to do this twice. The victims don't want to screw up the process. Go ahead, Pete. But remember whose rights are paramount in the criminal I justice agree. process. It's the defendant. So the question is, is a gag order, for example, good for the defendant, not for the victim's family? Uh, is it good for this case from the perspective of the defendant? I, I, agree. Know that, I know that that's painful to hear for a lot of people, especially the people that are the victims, but that's whose rights are paramount. I just wish, and I agree. And I think at the end of the day, that decision is up to the judge and the judge has to do the balancing act. And I'm okay. If the judge leans a little heavier on the side of the criminal defendant to make sure it's a fair trial, make sure we don't have to do this over again. But I just think a victim should have a right to be heard. The judge should ask how the victim feels and thinks about the situation. And maybe he knows in this case, like you're saying, maybe he did talk to the prosecutor. Maybe the prosecutor indicated something to the judge. I'm just saying, it's not an absolute right. And I kind of think it should be if you're a victim that's going to testify in a case that you should also in, in things that directly affect you, I think you should be able to have your voice heard. Did you look something up dad that you want to mention? Well, you know, I, I was looking, I was, I was just looking at Marcy's law and reading it again and it, over and over again, it tells about their right to be involved in the process, their right to have notice of, of various things. Um, the right to have notice of pretrial hearings, the right to have notice uh, when there's motions to suppress. They're, but, you know, they have a right to all these notices in Marcy's law. So and hold on real quick. I'm sorry. I know I'm, I, I keep interrupting. and I'm sorry. 
but you're just talking, right? We're not, we're not having a chance to, to pinpoint. So, okay. So they have a right. This is an example case I'm dealing with right now, a right to know about motions to suppress or pre-trial hearings. What happens if they don't get notified of that? No, well, I, I, I can tell Literally you nothing. Florida, there's I, no I, teeth. There's no repercussion if their rights are quote unquote violated, or if there's a motion to suppress and they were never told about it, there's no teeth to those rights. Well, what do you, what do you think should, what do you think should, do you think the, the prosecutor should be fired? If they're, I don't think they should be fired, notified? but I think that there should I mean, be what, some repercussions. What is it that you expect just, to happen? I think there should be some repercussions if the prosecutor just forgets about the victim in the case and doesn't care enough to notify the victim in the case when things happen that are written into law, that should be absolute rights for victims. Well, like you're talking well, about. Well, you know, the repercussion, the repercussion is that when that state attorney runs for election, that he doesn't get reelected because he violated the rights of victims. You know, that's a, that's what happens in every situation is if the prosecutor doesn't do their job, according to the statutes that is raised and that situation can go before uh, an electorate that cannot elect the state attorney. I, I, I don't understand the, the rights are there. And I know that I don't know any judge that would shut a victim down that wanted to speak. I don't understand what you mean by what the repercussions, what do you think the repercussions should be other than not getting reelected if you violate a victim's rights? So I don't mean the judge, I mean the prosecutor, the judge, I mean to the prosecutor. Right. Right. And I think the, the repercussions to the prosecutor should be okay. Prosecutor from now on, you have to give every document that you file to the, to the victims or something like that, create more work for them to give more information to the victims, to make sure the victims in the case are up to date and knowing what's going on. Something like that. Just a repercussion that makes it better for the victims, not necessarily a punishment for the prosecutor, but a repercussion to make sure that we are protecting the rights of victims in the criminal process because the prosecutor makes it more than evident that they don't represent the victim, which is true. My gut says, if a victim were to walk into a courtroom at a hearing and say, your honor, I haven't been told about the last three hearings. I'm just making this up. Okay. No one's asking me what I think from the, the prosecutor's perspective. I need to be heard. I will bet that a judge would jump on a prosecutor at that point. But I, I get your point. There is nothing that the system is going to do if the prosecutor did not provide that piece of paper. There's no, you know, they can't dismiss the case. They can't dismiss the prosecutor. They can't, there's no teeth to it, as you say. But I, I just think that it's part of the process. I don't think that prosecutors become prosecutors and prosecute cases in order to purposely. No, I agree. Their I don't victims. think prosecutors are doing this on purpose. No, I don't. And they're they're overworked and they have so much to do. And I agree. I think prosecutors generally do care about victims. I didn't mean to make it sound like that. I just feel like it's difficult for victims because, again, you're right. If a victim stood up in open court and told the judge the prosecutor wasn't giving them the information, maybe something would be done. How often do you think that happens? How many Very victims rarely. are willing to do that? How many victims have the gumption to stand up in court and tell the judge they think the prosecutor is doing something wrong? I mean, I just, I think it's tough. I think it's tough. And I don't know, I don't know what the answer is or the fix is, but I did really want to talk about this. Okay. So for the last part of the podcast, um, gagging victims. Okay. So gag order comes out. You can't disseminate or talk about the mm -hmm. case. Anybody that's involved has information. Yeah. What rights do victims have that can't be gagged? How do you balance a victim's first amendment, right? This has happened to them. And then saying they can't talk about it in the media. Um, how does that work then? Well, I, are you saying that a judge would order a victim, tell a victim they couldn't talk to the media? I'm asking, can they? And if they did, how could a victim combat that? First off, I don't think they can. Okay. 
yeah, I, I don't think that they that they can do that. Um, now, if they do a general gag order for everybody in the case, yes, they can do that. But they just can't tell victim. You can't speak to the media. They would have to do a general gag order so no one can speak to the media and no information could be disseminated. Okay, to so let's anybody. say they let's say they do a general gag order. Can the victim be included in that? Yes, victim can be included in that because they are a participant in that. All witnesses can be included in that. In, in, uh, in that, yes, I do think that they can do a general gag order. I have, uh, I, I can't say that I've seen a case. That's what he talks about that. But I have seen cases on general gag orders that do authorize general gag orders to protect the integrity of the trial to make sure that certain information doesn't get out. What do you think, Pete? That's a really interesting question. And I will tell you, I think the judge absolutely has the right to gag somebody that is acting inappropriately or potentially uh, obstructing the judicial process. And I think that if a judge does issue a gag order against a particular party, let's just say that the, the, the victim is out there and just spreading hate and whatever. And if the judge is under the impression that it's going to affect the ability to have a fair and impartial trial for a defendant, absolutely, I think the judge would say, you're just not going to do that anymore. And if you do it, you're subject to sanctions. I think it can happen. But again, the, the, the facts would have to, um, the facts would have to be such that it would be reasonable in order to protect the sanctity of the the legal process. So, and I, I agree. I think there are situations where they probably could gag a victim as bad, as bad as that sounds. Um, but it would have to be kind of specific to what they're saying, right? They can't, uh, give confidential information out. They shouldn't talk about guilt or innocence. They should not say anything that could potentially poison a jury pool. But don't victims have First Amendment rights, Dad? And something's done to them. It wasn't their fault, especially if it's, you know, still a living victim where let's just say it was a battery, okay? So somebody comes in your house and beats you up. You saw that person come in your house. You know they did it. You're not speculating to say that they did it. How do you really gag that? Like how, how would a court, even if they felt like they needed to, to get a fair and impartial jury, like... How do you balance the First Amendment right for something that's happened to somebody? They're not able to go talk about it if there's media interest in the case. Well, well, well that's why there's such a heavy burden uh, in order to gag somebody, um, because the First Amendment is paramount. And someone has that right. Yes, those victims have that right to talk to the press if they want to. Those victims have that right to express their opinion. Uh, it, it has to be an overriding governmental interest in order to, to gag a victim. The First Amendment. I mean, just like it's protecting the press, it protects that individual victim. They can say things that they want to say. Now, you're right. Like like Pete said, if they start talking <clears throat> about things that will obviously infect the jury pool such so you can't get a fair jury, that's a different situation. But them just talking to the media, absolutely. It's absolutely fair. It's absolutely right. And they absolutely can do it. Just like a defendant could talk to the media. He has a, if they wanted to, if, if some lawyer would let their client talk to the media, which happens, uh, they have an absolute first amendment right to talk to the media. So the first amendment protects everybody. Yeah. But remember the first amendment has limitations. You cannot, you know, threaten violence to someone. You cannot commit a crime through your, your first amendment. Right. And that's what I think you're going to see when the victims go out there and they want blood. Right. 
and you hear somebody get out there and say, this person did harm to my child. If, if let's just say they're in custody or they're out of custody, I want harm to be done to this person. A judge can absolutely gag that that victim from being able to communicate with the press from that point forward and can absolutely sanction them. Of course, they'd be subject to criminal prosecution also for that. But yeah, and I think that's that's an important factor. Did you have something else to add you were gonna say? No, 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 that that's right. So and I think that's an important factor. And I think where the some of the high profile cases that have gag orders it makes it seem like they happen more often than they do. But I do think that you really have to compare apples to apples. You can't compare a high profile case to a case that has no media attention and say, oh, 50% of these two cases didn't have a gag order because there's no media attention in this case. So there's no need for a gag order. So you really can only compare the cases that have a lot of media attention um, uh, with other cases that have a lot of media attention. So how far can a push a victim push their right, their first amendment right, whatever you want to call it, um, in cases where there is a gag order, let's say the court throws cameras out um, and recordings and live streaming and things like that out, but a victim wants the media attention on this case. How do you balance those rights as far as the victim saying things like they're hiding the ball? Things are being done in secret. Why is this being done behind closed doors? They don't want us to see everything. Or even when the victim becomes adverse to the prosecutor. Well, again, there's no bright line. There's, there's no, you, you, there, there's nothing that you can, these are what judges are for. Judges are there to balance everybody's rights, to balance the constitutional rights, to take a look at the statutes, and they're going to have to make a decision. Has this victim gone too far? Have they not gone too far? Do they still have that First, first Amendment right? You know, those are, those are decisions that judges are being paid to make, and we can't sit here today and say, yes, in this circumstance, this is a bright line. This is what happens. In this circumstance, this is what happens. Sure, the easy questions are like Pete just said. Yeah, when someone says you're threatening violence, that's an easy question. Mm -hmm. The harder questions are the ones where you just said, like, you know, they're hiding the ball. Well, accusing the prosecutor of hiding the ball or of that certainly is is something that a victim should be able to say to the press because the press is there to do that kind of investigation, make sure that the ball is not being hidden. That's the purpose of the press. And that's, and that, and that does happen. I've seen victims that have said the prosecution is not prosecuting this hard enough. They're not going after this guy hard enough. They're not charging him with serious enough crimes. That is all legitimate comment. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly newsworthy. And that's how you keep the prosecutors honest is by having victims that are able to go out there and say these things. So victims do not have rights to know everything that's going on in the case or know all the evidence that prosecutors gather. How does have, it? I'm sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? You disagree with no, that? No, I thought that was a question. I thought you Do you disagree done. with that? No, no, you're right. Okay. So they don't have a right to all of that. But in, in locking it into a trial by media and the media attention, how would that affect that process even more? And just as an example, so Koberger, they're saying they're not sharing anything with them. They won't tell them what evidence they have. Um, so they don't know how confident to be as far as conviction. Is this the right guy? Is it not? Because that's a, a situation where the victim's actually deceased and talking about family members, not an eyewitness, but instead, you know, they're kind of relying on circumstantial evidence and connecting the dots and hoping they have the right guy, but they don't really know situation. So how can media attention affect how much prosecutors share with victims and their families? We see when it starts to affect strategy and the strategy of the lawyers prosecuting or defending a case, I think that's kind of, 
a very important decision maker. So if a prosecutor in the Coburg case isn't sure if this is the right person and does not want to create a media uh, frenzy that this is the person just to come find out that they've got the evidence wrong. I'm just making it up. Okay. That's important because they don't want to have the public lose faith in the system. They don't want to pre-try this case in the, in the, in the public eye before they're ready to do it. And especially in cases where there's uncertainty and we don't have you know, the corpus delecti. I, I use, I'm sorry, I use it in Latin terms. You wouldn't actually have the body. We don't have, you know, the weapon, whatever the case may be. You, I can see prosecutors wanting to hold that close to the vest and not communicate that information, at least the specifics of that information to their victims, just because they don't want it out there because it very well may affect the decisions that they have to make in the prosecution or defense of a case. What do you think, Dad? Well, I, I think that we've got a, another thing, we, and, I, and I know and I'm sympathetic to victims just like you are. But the prosecution in this case, it is, for instance, it is the U.S. government versus so-and-so. It is the state of Florida versus so-and-so. It is not the individual victim that's prosecuting the case. It is the governmental agency that's prosecuting the case. That governmental agency has to make certain decisions. Grand juries are secret processes for a reason. That's why you have grand juries. If you do all the evidence, if you have to expose all the evidence to everybody, then some innocent people may get hurt as well because, you know, you may have investigated somebody and found out they're innocent. Well, the fact that that information got out could hurt that person's reputation, even though they did nothing wrong, but yet you, you investigated them and found out they were innocent. So you've got to protect the process as well. And there is no reason to disclose all the evidence to the victims. They're not going to be prosecuting and trying the case. The prosecutor is. So he has to do his own investigation. He has to do his own trial strategy, as Pete said. I, I don't see any reason why all of the evidence needs to be disclosed to the victims. You don't see any reason, like no. maybe like putting them at ease or making them feel confident you actually have the right guy. So I disagree. I, I, I see a reason I that do. you have to balance, but I don't think that they have to turn over everything. I wouldn't turn over everything in every case, but I think that talking to them about it so that they can feel confident that you have the right guy, I think is a reason to discuss the evidence in the case with them. Well, you, you, you have that choice. You do have that option, but to make it a rule, how do you, where do you draw the line? No, I would never make it a rule. So where do you draw the line saying, all right, I'm going to give you this much, but I'm not going to give you that much. No, it's prosecutorial discretion. Yeah, right. no, I agree with that. But I think right. that the media attention, and this is kind of the point of the question, the media attention, I think makes them share even less with victims, not more. Well, of course, of right. course. So, overarching thoughts on a victim's rights when it comes to media attention, dad, on both sides, wanting to be involved and not wanting to be involved. I think that victims, and, and again, today, as we sit here today, under Marcy's law, I think that victims are protected sufficiently under Marcy's law so that they know what's going on. They know when the court hearings happen, things are not being done in court in secret. You know, a lot of times it used to be that prosecutors didn't tell victims about certain plea deals because they didn't want victims to come in and screw the, the deal up. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So I do think there are sufficient protections in Marcy's law. What do you think, Pete? The reality is um, the victim is a victim twice, once for the crime 
and one's for the prosecution. And there's no way around it. And from a victim's perspective, they have the right to be as involved or as uninvolved as they want. What they don't have the right is to use their First Amendment right as a sword and a shield. So they can't be out there banging their chest and doing things that are you know, inflammatory, but at the, at the, on the other side saying, well, 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 but I don't want you to put out my information. I don't want you to, to show my face, but I want to go out there and do it in the media. So it, it, there's a balancing act to be had, and it's tough to be a victim. It is. Yeah, I think it's really tough to be a victim, and I think that's the point of why victims need lawyers. This is not an easy um process to navigate even on the criminal side it's so confusing to them that the state attorney doesn't represent them victims advocates some are great some are not um but we see a difference in i think when victims have lawyers in these processes and it's it's difficult and it sucks and it's never going to be worth it it's never going to be like oh great i'm glad i'm a victim so it's not like we're expecting things like that just involving them in the process letting them know what's going on keeping them up to date just like we do in civil cases but I get it that there's so much work to do and it's difficult to do that and prosecute the caseloads that prosecutors have. So just, I hope we can find better ways to involve them in the process and protect them from the media when they want to be protected, but let them partake in it when they want to as well, which again, I think lawyers help navigating those waters, but thank you both for joining me today. That's all we've got until next time we're out of here. Thanks for watching another episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the thumbs up and share with your friends who might be interested here on YouTube. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can also follow us on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, at Lawyer You Know. But on Instagram, we are still at Tragos Law. So look us up on there. And don't forget to listen to The Lawyer You Know podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. If you have a case you want to talk to us about, if it's a personal injury case, wrongful death, catastrophic injury, car accident, or slip and fall case, please email us lawyer, you know, at gmail.com. Of course, all of these links I just mentioned are included in the description below on this episode and every episode. So until next time, this is Peter Tragos, the lawyer, you know.